Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. This morning, what I'd like to talk about as we look at one of the songs of the soul from the book of Psalms that we've been exploring this summer, I, I want to just kind of throw out there this general principle that, that life was meant to be lived to the fullest. God has given your time on this earth, my time on this earth, and he means for us to live it to the fullest, and that means living it in relationship with him. Knowing him and being connected to him and and experiencing his joy and his plan and and following him in that way. And, And we were meant to really enjoy life and experience it to the fullest. But there's something that we miss out in life that uh, actually dampens our ability and diminishes our ability to really experience life to the fullest. We, we think that if I just had more vacation time, then I would be happy. If I just got more education or had more money or was in better health, then I would be ha- If I had the right relationships, then I would be truly able to experience life to the fullest. And actually, as we go through the scriptures and we, we look at God's plan for our lives, there's something that we often forget about and if you and I would just forget about, if we would just remember it instead of forgetting about it, then we would really be able to experience the fullness of life. And what I'm talking about is this, you and I forget that one day we're gonna die. And I know that you're thinking, oh, what a downer. <laughs> you know, I just kind of, you just took that big, bucket of cold water and you just threw it right on me. I was so encouraged, I was so helpful, and here you are, you're talking about the fact that one day I'm gonna die. Well, the Bible does say that it's appointed to each and every one of us that we will die, and after this, there's a second appointment, and that a second appointment is this, is that we stand before God and we give an account for our lives. After this comes the judgment after death. The passage of scripture, the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, challenges us to understand that life is short and we need to make it count. We need to make life count because it's very short. And I know those of you that are young here today compared to me, okay, you're thinking, ah, I got lots of time. And those of you who are my age and maybe a little bit on the the downhill side of, of life, you're thinking life is short. Boy, is it short. It's screaming past as I'm going down the hills and the brakes have failed and here I go. Fact of the matter is, it's short for all of us. It's just a blip on the timeline of eternity, human life is. Just a brief thing. And we need to be ready to meet the Lord at any time. Life is short. Make it count. The passage we're going to look at today, Psalm 90, is going to give us some ideas of what to do. It's not the only passage of Scripture that talks about how to be ready to to make life count, even though it's very short. But it is something that that shows us something that's very significant. Now, last week when Jessica and I were looking at the Scripture, Psalm 77, and we were finding comfort and encouragement in that passage, we we were kind of wrestling with what the, the psalmist was wrestling with, and he was asking the question, who are you, God? 
I don't know who you are. I thought I understood who you were, and it looks like there's been this, this cosmic bait and switch. There's been this change, and I thought you were so merciful and kind and long-suffering and caring, but look at this trouble I'm going through, and where are you? And it seems like you've abandoned me. <clears throat> but the answer to that is God hasn't changed, and he's still faithful and true. We just need to trust him and rely on him and, and experience his fullness even when it's difficult and we don't see his footprints leading us. We still trust him him and follow him and rely on him. This passage, though, I think is challenging us to ask another question. And it's a question that's really at the issue of this business of life is short, make it count. And the question is just simply this, who are we, God? Who are we? Who are we as a race of people? Who are we as human beings? Who are we, God? And this passage, Psalm 90, challenges us to have a very realistic view as to who we really are. It's not all cheery, it's very sobering, but it's important so that we step out of denial and face the truth about our life and our existence and our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And so I invite you now to take your Bible, let's turn to Psalm 90, and let's just explore who are we in our relationship with God. And, and, and as, that, as we answer that question, <clears throat> And I promise you it's not going to be as morbid as you think it's going to be. But uh, I, this is very serious. It's very grave what we're talking about. But I, I hope that you're able to handle it. I'm sure you will. But as we look at this passage and explore it, we're going to see clearly who we really are in the eyes of God, uh, our Creator. So I invite you to follow along. And, and uh, I'm going to read. And I want you just to listen carefully as we read today. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Would you read verse 12 with me? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us 
and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You notice in this psalm written by Moses, where this is the only psalm in all 150 of the psalms in the book of Psalms, of these hymns, this is the only one that was written by Moses. And Moses, the great liberator, the one who led the children of Israel out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt, led them across the Red Sea into the promise, into the, the wilderness, through the wilderness, into the very threshold of the promised land. This Moses is the one that wrote this psalm. We're not exactly sure when he wrote it. I think it makes sense that he's reflecting on the time of the Exodus, the 40 years of wandering through the desert, how that whole generation passed away. And now here he is. He's at the end of his life, and because of his own sin, he's not allowed to finish the job and lead the children of Israel into the promised land to take possession of their new home. And as Moses reflects on all of this, this is a psalm, a composition, as he's reflecting on the temporariness of life, as he's thinking about the the mortality of human beings and the fact that we give an account to God, that life really is short, and he tells his people to make account. How? By counting their days and remembering that God is working in the midst of all our time here on earth as well. Notice, though, that he starts the psalm off, and this is on page 496 if you're using one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you. But on page, uh, on Psalm 90, verse 1, notice what it says. It's a statement. It's a statement of encouragement, and it's a statement of reminding that for everything that we're thinking about when it comes to life is short, make it count, let's remember this. This is the most important thing. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What he's simply saying here is that, God, we recognize that as we've wandered through the desert, as we were slaves in Egypt, we had no permanent home. We weren't in possession of a home. We were actually a nation of people that were homeless, but we really weren't that homeless because you were our dwelling place. That word dwelling place is is a phrase in in Hebrew that just simply has the idea, it's describing a a layer. Now, not like a layer cake, that's what some of you are immediately thinking of, but I'm talking about where an animal goes to hide, like a fox den or a burrow that a rabbit or a groundhog would hide in, or or a den of a lion or a bear, a a place where they would go. And maybe you could think of a a little small animal, maybe like a chipmunk or a squirrel, and, and there's a dog or a cat chasing it, and it's able to run away and quickly scamper into the garden outside your home and hide underneath the rocks because there's a secret entrance and a hole there where it lives, and it can hide, and it's safe. And Moses is saying here, God... You've been that place of safety for us. You've been our home. As we've wandered through the desert, you've been our home. Even though we were here, even though we were frightened, even, we dis- even though we disobeyed you and failed you, you've taken care of us, you have led us, you have provided for us, you did this. You were our home. You were our place of safety. And he's emphatic there. You, God, are the one who's been watching over us and taking care of us. And so Moses announces this at the beginning of the psalm. And he said, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. But as we think about God being our dwelling place and that he ultimately is our place of safety, he's our place of refuge, as we think about him that way, we need to think about why we need him as our place of refuge and our place of safety. 
Why do we need someone to protect us? You and I may think that the greatest dangers, I mean, just, just imagine this for a minute, just kind of in your mind, just unplug for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to come back and listen to me again. But I want you to unplug for just a moment, and I want you just to answer this question in your own mind. What's the greatest danger you're facing? Is, is it, is it the, the diagnosis of the doctor and, and the fact that he said you, you have this condition that's life-threatening? Is it, is it terrorism? Is it financial ruin? Is it a divorce? Is it your kids forgetting you or ignoring you? Is it friends betraying you? Is it losing your job? Is it being fired from your job? You know, and other people thinking that you're a jerk you know, or just rejecting you? What, what's the greatest danger, the thing you fear most? Moses is saying here, there's something, there, there are at least two things that we should fear even more than all of that stuff. The first is just simply this. Life is really short. Human life is temporary. Your life is fragile. It's temporal. It's transient. It's here, and then it's gone. You should be afraid of that and very concerned about that. He says in verse 2, and he, and he does this, he, he says really the illustration is, is that when we compare ourselves to God and his eternality, we recognize how short our lives really are. Notice in verse 2, he says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's saying, God, you're the creator. You made everything that there is. <clears throat> In the ancients' mind, the people of the ancient Near East, Israel, and the other people surrounding Israel, they thought that the oldest things in creation were the mountains, the largest, the most stable, the most enduring. They could look at them and figure out how big they were, how strong they were, how weathered they were, and they assumed that they were the oldest things that they were on earth. And they said, even before those mountains were formed, you were there. Before earth and the world, the land and the world had been given birth by you, before you had brought them into existence and created them, you were already there. From eternity to eternity, you were God. From age to age, you were God. Moses is declaring here the eternality, the everlastingness of Almighty God, our Creator. But in verse 3, he says, You return man to dust. I mean, that's the destiny of human beings. We were created out of the dust of the ground. That's what Genesis chapter 1 and 2 say, is that God took the dust of the ground, the dirt of the ground, and he breathed, formed it, and then breathed his life into it. And Adam, the very first human being, became a living soul, created in the image of God. And he formed Eve, the first woman, out of Adam's side. And God did that. And it's a reminder <clears throat> that our origin we come from this earth. We come from the dirt. We come from dust. And God made us this way. And then he says, I'm going to actually return you back to dust. I'm going to send you back to the dust. And then he says, return, O children of men, literally children of Adam. Now, I always thought it was kind of amazing that the people of Little Sound Chapel hired me to be their pastor. If they really had looked into all the stuff I did at the last church I served at, I don't know that they would have brought me here. For example, for example, one exciting thing that we did at, at uh, the little church I served in down in Carroll County is we moved a cemetery. Have you ever done that? It's, it's interesting. It is. Uh, you're, you're going, what? 
No, I'm, I'm really true. The, the, the little church, that, the building that we were in, it was actually in the corner of, a, of the property. There was a boundary line right outside the church and there was a road right outside the church and there was a parking lot road and, and the only place, the direction we could move if we were going to expand our church building was to build over top the cemetery and that you can't really do that. You're not allowed to do that. So, in case you're wondering. And so we, <laughs> we don't try it. Uh, so what we, what we did is we went through all the paperwork and we got all the permits and we had to have a funeral director come out and watch and all this kind of stuff. And we notified the families, had announcements in the papers and one day the backhoe driver showed up with a dump truck and his equipment and we basically moved 30 graves that were behind it. And you're going, ooh. Um, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law thought it was really funny because... Uh, that was right during the first Iraq war. And he said that there was somebody there trying to steal arms for Iraq. So anyway, just, 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 just think about that, okay? Uh, we moved everything. We had several vaults that we had to pick up and move. And we, re, we reinterred them, we buried them at a lower end of the lot. We set up all the tombstones. We cleaned everything up, made it look really nice. And we just picked everything up and just moved it right down. And you're thinking, well, did you find anybody? Did you see anything? You know what we found? Other than the, the couple vaults that we just picked up and moved? We found a pair of wire rim glasses. We found the upper of a set of dentures. We, we found a pair of leather pants that the threads had been rotted out of. We found these little tiny pieces of plate glass that were actually in the lid of a coffin because back in those days, the coffin lids had windows. Serious? And uh, that was it. There was nothing else. You would, you would see the cross section of the grave and you would see the grass and the topsoil and then this sandy clay-like soil and there would be a little thin black strip and then there was this sandy clay soil. Everything was gone. Little pieces of brick and some slate that were the old time vaults that they had. We found a lot of that. But no people, no bodies, no nothing. Why? Because everything had dissolved and decayed and gone back to dust. It's what happens to us when we die. You take the soul out of a human body and it decays and it goes back to dust. And I saw it with my own eye. It's not as creepy as you think it is. He says here, God's plan, he tells people to turn back to dust. That's our destiny. It's a reminder of our mortality. In fact, the Church of England, in their Book of Common Prayer, Psalm 90 is one of the readings at a funeral. Well, duh, of course it is. But you know, even if it hurts, even if it stings, it's a wound that's supposed to heal and remind us to make sure we're right with God because life is short and make it count. So he says, return to dust. Return, O children of man, literally children of Adam. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Life is so short, human existence compared to God. Even the people who have ever lived the longest, and when you search the pages of Scripture, you see, and I don't understand how this took place, but in the book of Genesis, you start reading and you understand that there were some people who lived 900 years, and I, I don't know how they did it. Fish oil, vitamins, good exercise, 
or just the blessing of God. I don't know. I don't know what the secret was. But they did. Methuselah, even Adam, many people, Noah, lived these long 900-year lives, almost, almost a millennia. Can you imagine being alive and halfway through your life, Columbus discovers America and you die today? That's the kind of lifespan that some of those people had. And, and that's, that's what he's saying. Even if you look at a human being that could possibly live that long, that is just a blip on the timeline of eternity compared to the eternality of God, the, the self-existence and longevity of God. From eternity to eternity, you are God. It's just like a memory of yesterday. You thought the day would never end at work on Friday. You were just waiting for the clock to the ding and you could punch out, you could leave your job. You were thinking that school would never be over, that the bell would ring and you could run out and get on the bus. You thought that that vacation would never end because of the screaming, crying kids and that long drive up the interstate. It'll never be over. And God is saying, it's nothing. It's like a memory from yesterday. Gone. It's already over. It's like a watch in the night, which would just be like a couple hours. It's that short compared to God. You sweep them away with a flood. We saw a lot of floods this week, didn't we? They are like a dream. You wake up, you remember it, maybe you forget it, and it's gone. That's what life is like, human life is like. They're like the grass that is renewed. Just imagine the grass getting that rain, and you wake up in the morning, you see the dew all over the the grass and you see it and you, you, you see it's kind of perking up and turning green again and it flourishes, it's growing, it's renewed and in the evening it fades and withers. In this passage, Moses is saying, you know what we human beings are like? We're so temporary. That's who we are. We're so temporary. We're like a flood that's swept away, the debris that's washed away by a flood. We're like a forgotten dream. We're like grass that grows and then withers before day is over. That's what human beings are like. I, I say this again, not to, to, to burden you. I don't say this, I don't share this just to kind of heap this, this dread and gloom, morbidity upon you, but it's a fact. Life is short. We need to make it count. Here's why it's short. This is another thing that's true of us. Not only is, are we temporary, but we're also sinners. God's eternal, we're temporary. God is holy and just, righteous, and we are guilty and ashamed because we're sinners. Verse seven, it says, for we, and here Moses is personalizing, he kind of was given that, that general reference to the entire human race we are all temporary we're here today gone tomorrow life is short and and then he's specifically saying you know i'm not just pointing at other people saying they are sinners and they are guilty but he's saying i am a sinner we're sinners we are guilty we've wandered through the desert for 40 years because we disobeyed you i'm not going into the promised land because i disobeyed you moses is saying this in this statement we we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. What God is simply saying here through his servant Moses is that God sees everything that there is about your life and mine. You know, the stuff that we hide, it reveals what's really our character. 
It reveals what we're really concerned about, what's most important to us, the stuff that we hide. And God sees all the things that we hide. He knows the secret things that we have thought, the secret things we've said, the secret things that we've done that we're ashamed of, that we're guilty of, that we've broken his laws and violated his principles. And we are guilty before him, the holy creator God. We've done all this. And because of our sin, we deserve his wrath, his holy and justified anger against our sin. And I know that some of us are wrestling with this today. I don't, I don't understand why God is so ticked off about lying. I don't get why, you know, dirty thoughts are so bad. I don't get why just because I want money and I'm a little bit greedy or I took something once when I was a child or an adult or, you know, I did these sinful things and I don't understand why God would be so mad about my sin. Everybody does it and there's so many compared to the totality of my life. Why would God be so angry against sin? It doesn't seem fair. Someone explained it to me this way. Really, the issue is, is who is the crime committed against, okay? So let's, let's do a little thought exercise here, all right? So let's imagine this boy in middle school, you know what they're like, okay? All right, so let's just imagine this boy in middle school, he gets in an argument with another student and he punches a student. What happens? He gets detention. He has to stay after school and he gets in trouble, okay? Let's suppose that when detention while he's in detention, that same middle school boy gets mad and he punches a teacher. What happens then? He gets suspended. He doesn't just stay after school, he gets kicked out of school. He's in big trouble, has to stay away from school for him a couple days. Let's suppose that as he's walking home from school, that same middle school student, let's suppose as he's walking home from school, he sees a police officer and he gets mad at a police officer and he punches a police officer. What happens then? He goes to jail, juvenile hall. He gets in trouble and he goes to jail. Well, let's suppose after several years, that same middle school student has grown up and now he's at a big rally where the President of the United States is going to speak. And as he's in that crowd, the President comes walking up to the podium and he lunges out and tries to punch the President of the United States. What happens then? the Secret Service shoots him dead. He committed the same crime every time. All he did was punch somebody. But the severity of the crime was determined by who the crime was against. You get shot if you shoot the president, or hit the president. You might get an hour after school if you punch another student. What happens when you and I offend and break the laws and bring shame to the God who created us and made us and who says, I want to be your dwelling place, your place of refuge forever, and we refuse that? What happens then? He's even greater than the President of the United States. You see, I I know that that's not a perfect illustration, but it brings out that idea that Our sin is a crime. It's an offense against the holy God, the creator of the universe, 
who loves you, who gave his son for you, who wants you to have a relationship with him. And our sin and our rebellion is against him and we're saying we don't want that. We want to live life on our own and we suffer the consequences because of it. Moses is saying here that not only are we temporary, but we're sinners and we're under God's judgment. For all our days, it says in verse 9, pass away under your wrath. We live our wrath every day. It's, it's not that down the road we find out we get wrath. It's we're under the wrath of God today. Jesus even said that. You know, that those that reject him, that refuse to believe in Christ, they're under the wrath of God, the judgment of God already because the wrath of God abides. It lives on top of them. The years of our, our, excuse me, for all our days pass away under your wrath. You bring, we bring our years to an end with a sigh. There's just a, 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 a lamenting of the, the emptiness and the sorrow of our lives as we try to live without God. <sighs> Remember somebody once said to me, boy, that was a heavy sigh. I just sighed about something. There was a burden that I was getting. That was a heavy sigh. And you've done that too. There's just something you're worried about, you're anxious about, you're frightened about, you're caring, you're concerned about, you're angry about, and it's just like, <sighs> and that's really what our lives are like without God. It ends with just a big sigh, not a bang, but a whimper, as T.S. Eliot said in his one of his poems, just a whimper, a sigh. The years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength 80, talking about the people who had wandered through the desert, who were judged in the desert, maybe they only lived 70 or 80 years total. They died off before the next generation went into the promised land. Our lives are so short, yet their span, and in the word there, span is, is not so much a length of time, but it's the idea of, of pride. And we're trying to figure out what does he mean, the pride of our life, the pride of the, the time that we live on earth. I think he's just trying to say that even the things that we're proud of, even the things that we think are successful, even the things that we think are remarkable and commendable, that really they're just toil and trouble. You know, raising our kids and having this job and trying to stay physically fit. And, and, and as we do all these things that we think are so important that make our life remarkable and commendable in the eyes of other people, really it's just that deep down inside we just kind of sigh because it's just a lot of work. And there's a lot of trouble with it. Life is hard. And that's what he's emphasizing here. This quality of our lives is really, tr really troublesome and toilsome. They are soon gone and we fly away. And the imagery here is of a bird that sees you coming and as soon as you get close, it just jumps up and flies away and it's gone just like that. Just flees in a moment. I was riding my bike yesterday on the rail trail over in Hanover and there were a couple goldfinches that kind of were racing me and they won, of course. And so they're just kind of hopping along from plant to plant and they just kept going. I thought it was kind of cool, but I couldn't beat them. They flew away too fast. Life is that brief. That sh our lives are so shallow. There's no depth or stability or solidity to them. He then asks a question. It's a rhetorical question in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger? Who is really thinking about the fact that one day we do have to give an account for the lives that we've lived? Who, who is really pondering the fact that after we die there is the judgment? Who is thinking about the fact that we're living and trying to
all of our lives, knowing that, that you're displeased with our sin, knowing that we're not living life that honors you. Who, who's really thinking about that? We're driving with the parking brake on. That's what life is like when it comes to our sin and rebellion against God. Who's, who's considering the power? Who's pondering the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who, who really fears you, God? Who really understands that you are our creator and you are the one that lasts forever and you are the one who is in control of all things and we give an account to you? Who is really pondering that so that they fear you and reverence you and love you and surrender to you and put you first? Who's doing that? And the point is, is hardly anybody. Maybe nobody. Who's doing that? And that's why then in verse 12, he prays this prayer, the, the verse that we read together. So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. God, if life is so temporary, and if we are sinners that deserve your judgment because we've broken your laws and we've offended you and we've hurt others and hurt ourselves, if we've done these sinful things, if we've done them, and we're guilty because of them, and we don't fear you, and we're not worried about trying to get things right with you, then what are we going to do? We need to number our days. We need to count up how long we've been living. And we need to understand that we have to give an account to you, and, and maybe in the process we'll gain some wisdom and be able to live properly. Frank, show the next slide. So here's the watch you need to go get, okay? This is the ticker, T-I-K-K-E-R. Okay, ticker watch. It's invented by a Swedish fella, and he calls it the happiness watch. Okay? No, I'm serious. Now, if you look at the top, it says this person has 64 years, zero months, and 30 days. They have 22 hours, zero minutes, and 22 seconds until they die. It's supposed to use an algorithm, the kind of tables like the federal government uses to figure out who gets what in social security and insurance companies use to figure out how long you're going to live if you pay this premium and what their payout's going to be those those actuary tables and all that kind of mortality tables it uses those kind of tables you put in a little bit of informa information and programs you and they say well you know you're probably going to live maybe till and i don't know how old this person was but they've got at least 64 years under their belt i guess uh, yeah, it's fanciful. Who can really know? You could be looking at your watch and trying to figure out what the real time is, and that's what the bottom row is, is the real time. And uh, you're looking at your watch, step off the curve, and get hit by a bus. And, you know, that kind of throws the whole equation out the window, doesn't it? All right. And you laugh at this. You can actually buy this on Amazon. You can do that. You can wear it. But the inventor calls it, he calls it the happiness watch. Huh? It sounds so freaking, you know, morbid. What is going on here? It's weird. His point is, his point is, is that if you were living mindful that you only have so many years left, so many days left, so many hours left, would you use your time better? Would you invest the time that you have in things that were more meaningful and productive for you and for other people? Would you 
rebuild that broken relationship? Would you in, invest in helping and serving other people? Would you spend your money not just in some sort of fleeting pleasure, but really invest it in long term, maybe to help future generations or to help the poor? What would you do with your time if you knew that's all you had? It was to be a, a reminder. It's a gimmick to remind you of how brief your life is. Life is short, make it count. Now, I'm not saying that you need to get a watch like this. In fact, I don't think that's really practical because it might lull you into thinking you've got more time than you really do. But the fact of the matter is, if you and I would just go through life and remember that I only have a few days, a few years on this earth, life is short, I better make it count, then I'll do that. That's what he's saying here in verse 12. Teach us to number our days. Help us to, to be mindful that we only have a few. We have a limited quantity of time. And we need to use it well. Teach us to number our days for the purpose that we might get a heart of wisdom. And the word get there is really the idea of bring. And I think, I think really what he's trying to say here is I want to live my life in such a way that I've acquired wisdom, I've acquired skill from you, and I'm living my life well. Even though my time is short, I'm making it count by living for you and serving you. I'm dealing with the issue of sin. I'm dealing with the fact that I'm only here for a short period of time. And I'm trying to make my life count for you by your wisdom, the wisdom that's revealed in your word. And when I face you, God, I want to be able to say, hey, I gave my heart to you and I filled it with your wisdom. And I'm living my life for you. Wisdom is not just intelligence. It's not book smarts, school smarts. It's not an academically acquired. Wisdom is the skill that comes from seeing life from God's point of view and understanding life from his point of view and then living accordingly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word of the Lord is full of wisdom. Jesus Christ himself is the wisdom of God. And so as you and I know him and know his word and reverence and honor him above everything else, then we'll become wise. We'll get the wisdom of God and we'll be able to serve him. In verse 13, there's a little shift. And the shift is away from the fact that we're sinners and we need to be judged, but the fact that we are sinners that desperately need to be saved and we need to be rescued. And so really, if, if in verses two through six, we see that we're temporary, that's who we are. And if we see in verses seven through 12 that we're sinners that deserve God's judgment, then in verses 13 to the end, what we're seeing here is that God is merciful and God is forgiving and God is gracious. We need him. Part of our identity as human beings is not just our transitoriness and not just the fact that we deserve God's judgment, but the fact that there's a God who loves us and wants to save us and rescue us and make us his children. And if we trust in him, he will do that. He will rescue us. And so that's what we see beginning in verse 13. Moses says to God, return, O Lord. How long? And the idea is, how long will you forget us? How long will you ignore us? Return, O God. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years 
as we have seen evil. What he's emphasizing here are two important things. God, would you forgive us? Would you give us your forgiveness? Show pity to us, feel sorry for us, and forgive us? Would you be faithful in your love for us when he talks about satisfy us with your steadfast love in the morning? Lord, would you, would you pour out your love? You've said it's steadfast. You're eternal. That means your love should be eternal for us. Lord, would you show that to us? Help us see it. Your steadfast love. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, let your work be shown to your servants. Your glorious power to the children of men, our sons and daughters. Let the favor of the Lord God be upon us. And I think when you look at his work, his glorious power, his favor, you're really seeing this idea of God's grace. In fact, the word favor there is the idea of his beauty, his goodness, the goodness and beauty and favor and graciousness of God. And he's just simply saying here, we, our lives are so short, we, we deserve your judgment, we deserve every bit of your anger to be upon us, but God, I'm asking for mercy that you would forgive us. I'm asking that you would keep loving us, keep preserving us. And I'm asking that you would pour out your favor on us, that we would experience your grace and your salvation through all our lives. In fact, God, I'm asking you to take the mundane things of life as we go through every day and we do our jobs, whether it's planting out in the field or harvesting our garden or working our job or filing our papers or driving our cars or teaching our kids or whatever it is that we're doing throughout our days, the work of our hands, Lord, would you establish it? Would you make it count? Would you bless it and make it succeed, but not just succeed, would you make it something that's lasting and enduring that honors you and is good for others as well? Would you just come into my life right where I'm at in my situation, and would you bring your grace and power and change what I'm doing so that what, am I do- what I'm doing in today's world in time would count for eternity? I'm praying that you would change what I'm doing and make it count for eternity, for your honor and for your glory. And the thing is, is he can do that. He can do that because he wants to pour out his favor, his beauty upon us. I just think it's fascinating. When Moses describes human beings, he calls us dust. We're being returned to dust. Literally, it means we're crushed matter. It's not a word for dirt. It's just the idea of something being so pulverized that the particles are so small, it's just dust. You know, the finest debris that you could imagine, a gravel, just, just crushed, and it's just powder. And he says, that's what we are. We're crushed under the judgment of our sin. We're crushed by our mortality. We're crushed by our frailty. We're crushed by our transitoriness. We're crushed by all this stuff because we're just human beings made of dirt. But the thing that's interesting is that it says the favor of God is beautiful. And why is it beautiful? Just listen to me for a minute. Over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, We read, surely he, talking about the Messiah, the suffering servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, a prophecy of his life nearly 700 years before he was born. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The beauty of the Lord certainly is seen in the majestic display of the different creatures in the animal kingdom, the magnificent plants, the, the sunrise and sunset, the, the, the majestic storms and weather. But if you really want to see the beauty of the Lord, you look at the cross and you see Jesus hanging on that cross for your sins and mine. And you see the beauty of the Lord taking those scars, those wounds, that death, that crushing. And you see the beauty of his forgiveness and his reconciliation, his renewal and new life. You see the beauty of the empty tomb because Christ has risen from the dead and he's alive forevermore. And my friends, when you think about your mortality and you realize time is short and you need to make it count, the only way you'll be, ever to make it, be able to make it count is through the beauty of God that you see in Jesus, you trust him. That's how you become wise. You number your days and you see how short life is. So you say, I want to make it count because one day I'm going to stand before God. I want to present to him a heart of wisdom. The only way you'll be able to do that is through Jesus Christ. It's through trusting and following him. And Moses is saying, God, would you turn to us? You're judging us. Would you, would you turn to us and save us? Forgive us. Pour out your love. Pour out your favor. God, we're turning to you. We trust in you. And I'm asking you, because your son was crushed for us, may we now live a life that honors and pleases you by your power and your favor and grace every day. Life is short. Make it count. Jesus is the one who makes it count for you and through you for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic and excellent is your name in all the earth. And we give thanks to you that you have been our dwelling place for all generations. We can come back to you and truly, instead of running from you and trying to hide ourselves and, and control our own lives, we can surrender to you because you're the only one that can save us from your judgment. You're the only one that can save us from wasting our lives. I pray, Father in heaven, that you would teach us to turn to Jesus and trust in him. Thank you for being our dwelling place for all generations. I pray all our lives on earth, we would spend our time making our lives count by trusting in Christ, our rock and our refuge. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.